Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Shalom, your host for Women Wide for Wellness. Today, our guest is Dr. Joel Furman. He's a board certified family physician and a seven time New York Times bestseller. In addition to his own practice, he also has a retreat center in San Diego. It's called Eat to Live Retreats. Um, we're going to delve a little deep into why he has this retreat center, what it actually does. But here's what you want to know about Dr. Joel Furman. His specialty is in preventing and reversing disease through nutritional methods, which is something that we all strive to achieve. When you have a problem, many of us don't like to take medicines. Medicines are an option, but they are not your long-term solution. But could you shift the health of your cells by changing your nutrition? That's what we're going to discuss today in our conversation with Dr. Furman. Over the last 30 years, Dr. Furman has shown that it is possible to achieve sustainable weight loss, reverse heart disease, diabetes, and many other chronic illnesses using smart nutrition. In his medical practice and through his books and television specials, he continues to bring this life-saving message to hundreds and thousands of people around the world. So we'll delve a little deeper into his background in my conversation with him, but welcome again, and I am sure you're going to thoroughly enjoy this conversation. Welcome everyone. So here's our guest, Dr. Joel Furman. Thank you so much, Dr. Furman. This is a real privilege. As I told you, you were one of the few folks I followed when I started my journey into nutrition and medicine. And so it's a real great honor to learn from you in this conversation. So let me start by asking, I know you are both certified in family, um, as a family physician, but Prior to that, was were you? How did you get into nutrition as a physician, and why get into nutrition at all? Well, I went to medical school with the specific intent to be a physician specializing in nutrition. You know, I, I was raised. My father was overweight and sickly, and he changed his diet and started reading health books. And I was reading books in my teenage years on health and nutrition. And by the time I was in my early twenties, I was already, you know, felt that what doctors do was mostly harmful to people. Mm. They don't deal with the causes of disease. They just give them drugs, which are, which are toxic, to add on to their otherwise toxic diets. And, and we haven't um, even put it, we've failed the war on cancer completely. It's, we've lost the war. We've spent, you know, many billions of dollars, and the cancer rates have not decreased at all. And so, yep. and, and I know that we have an opportunity here to, to um, in, with modern nutritional science, gives us the power to wipe out heart disease, strokes, dementia, and cancers. To, to a large degree, and nobody's taking advantage of this. So I, I recognized this, you know, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, I think I'm, I'm 67, so I was when, when I was young, I was already interested in this, and then I felt after my skating career, I was too old to go back to medical school. But I was encouraged by, when I was, I was dating my wife then, I was, and she was going to medical school, so I was encouraged to just give up my family's business and go back to the postgraduate pre-med program at Columbia. Mm. and take the pre-medical requirements after, after, um, after I had graduated college and go back to medical school. So I didn't start medical school until I was about 29 or 30 years old. Oh, wow. So uh, tell me a little about how do you make that connection between nutrition and chronic illness? Obviously, you saw something in your father. Was it like, uh, was there not, even at that time, was there a lot of processed food around or was it just mostly meat and um, potatoes like starch, what, what was going on at that time that made you feel that's where the solution is? Well, we have, you know, the health of the American population hasn't changed that much, except, except we've gotten most, more overweight and more <laughs> obese. From it wasn't that wasn't processed food and junk food. It's just there were more fast food outlets. The fast food industry took off in the 1970s mm -hmm. and made access to processed food and, and high-calorie, low-nutrient foods more readily available at a cheaper price. So we've gotten, things have gotten worse, not better. Um, I originally started reading the natural hygiene literature. With, um, most of that was spearheaded by Herbert Shelton in the 1950s, which got my interest in nutrition with them. You know, there's a lot of um, modifications and mistakes they made back then, but the idea that disease, that the body is a miraculous self-healing machine and disease is unnatural. 
Mm, and it's yeah. not normal to get a heart attack. It's not normal to get cancer. It's not normal to get asthma and lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. You have to earn those diseases by living in an unhealthy manner. And the bun, obviously, we're, we're the, um, the species is protected against disease if you feed it properly. And this, so that, that underlying premise never changed. So uh, given that, this is, we're living in a world of information. Like if I have a diagnosed with a disease, all I need to do is sit in front of the computer. I can do so much of research. Why is there still so much confusion about nutrition? Well, don't forget you have um, the food industry and the restaurant industry with billions and billions of dollars to spend. Whereas the, you know, the string bean and broccoli and kale industry doesn't really put out much information about that. There's nobody promoting this, so to speak. But I, I have to say that today, the evidence is overwhelming and irrefutable that wholesome, organic, plant-based diets can prevent heart attacks, strokes, and cancers. Yeah. And, and my work has shown that when you achieve nutritional excellence to promote to um push the envelope of human longevity to allow people to live to be 100 years old in great health, then that same dietary portfolio enables people to get well when they're younger from lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's syndrome or scleroderma or psoriasis or asthma, in other words, or in reverse heart disease, get rid of diabetes, get rid of daily migraines, get rid of um, you know, urticaria and mm -hmm. all types. In other words, yeah. I've utilized nutritional excellence as a therapeutic modality, marveled at its effectiveness to not just prevent disease, but to reverse disease, including early stage cancers. And, um, and to say that, you know, we don't, that people don't need to have angioplasty and stents put in their heart. They don't need right. bypass surgery. We can, right. And they don't need blood pressure medications and diabetic medications. Right. And if we, if we never had these things, our population would be much better off. These medications aren't saving millions of lives. They're killing millions of lives because they work as enablers because they give, because now the person goes to the doctor, the doctor measures the blood pressure, they measure the blood sugar, they measure the cholesterol. And their answer is a slew of medications that increase the risk of cancer. If we never had medications, then doctors would be forced to do in the night that they did in 1910 and 1920s to say, I want to see you a week from now after you've dropped five pounds. I want to see you eating salads and string beans and broccoli and eggplant and and carrot sticks and come back here after dropping five pounds and without any salt in your diet. And let's see if your blood pressure comes back to normal. If we could get you to you know, live your life 20 pounds lighter, they'd be forced to encourage healthier living. And now the drugs enable them to just continue with the same diet stuff that caused the problem to begin with. And the inevitable consequence is people just get sicker and sicker and suffer and get tortured. They get tortured by the diseases and they get tortured by the medical professions because the side effects of the drugs are so significant. That's true. Uh, over what has happened is all these diseases have become common, so they've normalized it. It's almost like a, a patient who is 50 plus goes to the hospital. If they say, no, I'm not on any medications, I have not been diagnosed with anything, it's almost a surprise. But that's the peak of your life. So even, uh, you know, I, I see where you, where you find the problem is there's more promotion of meat and eggs and, you know, all the processed foods and easier to get people to buy something quickly. I pay money, I get a full meal kind of an option rather than try to eat whole foods. But I would say for even for patients who go to physicians, right? We have this whole ketogenic movement. You have the paleo movement. You have, um, and it works for some people, right? And then you have the vegan or the plant-based movement. It works for a certain population. This is where I think people get confused. Is like I, I don't agree with that. Those statements. Okay, so I mean, what I'm trying to say is this is where people are getting to get information, right? They see yes. somebody's lost a lot of weight, and they went on a ketogenic diet. They want to do that. How would you actually educate people on you know why those things don't actually work? I mean, you and I may know, but I, I'm plant based, but people come to me saying, you know, I went on a ketogenic diet and my aut uh, antibodies just went away or I've lost a lot of weight, my blood sugar is under control. Where does your thought process, having this, um, you know, education and nutrition? Where yes, because does, where people does, have to understand that 
yeah. um, short term short term changes is not doesn't mean that aren't the Long what we're looking at. Yeah, yeah, you can smoke. I can have you smoke cigarettes to lose weight, or snort cocaine to lose okay. weight, or <laughs> put you on a liquid protein diet mm -hmm. to lose weight. The liquid protein diets can cause lots of weight loss, but they've been determined to increase heart failure and premature deaths of the medical yes. profession. Because mm -hmm. we don't utilize short-term benefits as a measuring as a measuring of success. So right. when people say it worked for them, they're just being tricked or scammed. It's the same as medications work for them. Mm -hmm. Medications work for them too, but the problem medications is not they don't work in the short term. It's that in the long term they didn't extend lifespan. They actually shorten the person's lifespan. The same thing with diets that you're mentioning. Yeah. Because we give credence. You know, we can develop. We can generate a hypothesis with short-term changes. We can say, oh, it worked in the short term. There may be something to look in further. This may have some value. But we don't come to conclusions based on short-term changes. We only le that leads us to, to want to study what happens when people does this, do these type of um, interventions over decades to see if they're safe. We yeah. give people proton pump inhibitors for, gastric re for reflux esophagitis, and the short-term people feel better. But, then, but of course, we know in the long term, it increases risk of heart attack. It increases risk of cancer. We know that these things are dangerous for long-term use. There's right. a black box warning for long-term use. Right. With the ketogenic diets, the same thing is true. I could say now every study that we give high credence value, we give three criteria for high credence when we're looking at long-term benefits. And that is, number one, it has to have a very large number of people. We're talking about thousands of people in the studies, maybe even 100,000 people, not 50 people, not 100 mm -hmm. people. Yeah, because we have to because you don't we never determined that proton pump inhibitors cause heart attacks until we studied them and many, many thousands of people using them long term. Right. You know, we didn't see it when it was a few people. Number two, we have to look at hard endpoints, not soft endpoints. Mm -hmm. A soft endpoint is you lost weight, your glucose looked better, your triglyceride looked better, your cholesterol went down. Those are called soft endpoints. Right. Doctors like to measure soft endpoints because they might be predictive of hard endpoints. You're actually living longer. You have to get cancer as a a cancer death is a hard endpoint. A heart attack death is a hard endpoint. Having your cholesterol drop is a soft endpoint. Taking a statin drug may lower cholesterol. It's a soft endpoint. But now we have to see when we're looking at many thousands of people, look at them for decades and follow them till their death, do they actually make people live longer? Or perhaps they lower cholesterol and increase risk of cancer. And you have so many excess cancer deaths from the statin drugs that overwhelm the amount of heart attack deaths you protect against. We don't know for sure by looking at a short-term study if that's truly a benefit or not. We have to corroborate, corroborate it with a long-term study. Mm -hmm. So the three criteria here are large numbers of people, hard endpoints like death, and of course, um, this study has to go on for many de for decades, not years, mm -hmm. for, you know, 10 to 20 years. Now, we have those studies available. And what those studies show is that, when, that as people increase animal product in their diet, their hard endpoint deaths get, go, get worse and worse. And as they, they increase plant material and plant protein, their longevity increases. And we also have tremendous data today on ketogenic diets too, at, at long-term studies. Mm -hmm. And they show that they're exceedingly dangerous and they dramatically shorten people's lifespan. So both high protein paleo diets and, and, and ketogenic diets maintain a chronic acidotic state in the body over decades is extremely dangerous, especially when you do maintaining it with a lot of animal products and you're restricting the phytochemicals from, from even, though, even, even though vegetables show the most protection against cancer, the combination of fruits and vegetables show more protection than just having a high vegetable content. Fruits with vegetables shows more anti-cancer protection. Yeah. So what I'm saying right now is, my job and my career has spent reviewing all the data from all the studies that have been published, short endpoint studies, large endpoint studies. And I have to say that there's no confusion and no inconsistencies with the studies. Mm -hmm. The studies are dramatically and overwhelmingly consistent that show the same thing. And just for example, there are 17 large individual studies that show that the inclusion of nuts and seeds in the diet reduces cardiovascular death by about 40%. Now, it's amazingly consistent between one study and the other that almost every study with different cohorts, you know, um, Caucasian, Asians, whites, blacks, old, women, men, elderly, low animal product intake, high animal product intake, vegans, non-vegans, with every cohort looked at, the amazing consistency is the exclusion of nuts and seeds increased risk of heart attack death by 40%, and their inclusion of over an ounce a day reduced heart attack rates by 40%, and reduced overall mortality. So we come to conclusions based on consistency from one study corroborating another. 
And the idea that high an more animal protein, which may lower your blood glucose temporarily and induce some um, temporary weight loss, it's, it's absolutely consistent and not controversial that those diets lead to premature death and are not, health, are not safe in the long run. Now, now, since we also have whole food plant-based diets, or I, my, the diet that I recommend is called a nutritarian diet. It's not mm -hmm. just a whole food plant-based diet. Because mm -hmm. rice is a whole plant food. It's not a rice-based diet. It's, it's not a fruit-based diet. It's not a potato-based diet. It's a diet based on, it's with including foods that we know have the most proven anti-cancer and longevity benefits. We're including beans and mushrooms and nuts and seeds and, you know, and, and but in any case, green vegetables. We call it the G-bombs, if I remember yeah, right. So we're, so we're designing the diet to not... not Instead of being a blue zone, which just, um, you know, it just haphazardly happens to be better than the way Americans eat. Because culturally in that area, they're eating foods that are relatively healthy compared to the American diet. But they can't be held up as ideal diets. They're not mm -hmm. great diets. They're just better than what Americans eat. They live about 10 years longer. I'm looking at what's the foods with the most protective effects, utilizing the best aspects of all the different blue zones and removing the weaknesses to make a, green, a new green zone or a new, zone, a new diet that really enables people to push the envelope of human longevity and get to be 100 years old in great health. And the point I'm making right now is most of these um, principles I'm advocating really are not controversial if the nutritional scientist is familiar with the preponderance of evidence that supports um, the conclusions. It's, not that it's, it's controversial among lay people because they're bombarded with a lot of different messaging from different people with different agendas. And the agendas always twist science to look at short-term studies or, or they, they try to fit the science into their personal agenda instead of with an, letting the science dictate the advice. You follow me? The, letting the science dictate the advice. And there's no such thing as a diet rich in animal products that is safe. You could argue that a diet with a small amount of animal products might be almost just as good as one that's vegan. That could be legitimately argued. But you couldn't argue that as, as animal products increase, you're not making the diet more unsafe because that, there's too much data to, to already disagree with that. That, you, that can't be just ignored. So explain to us what your nutritarian diet actually involves because it's a little different from just a whole food plant-based diet right it has to do with picking and eating foods that are the healthiest foods and, the, and eating the healthiest foods and removing or eliminating when you we have a caloric limitation right yeah we can't just eat five thousand calories a day and be in good health yeah. we know that being overweight is not good for our health it's better to eat to be a, a, to be slim we have to be slim to be healthy. There's no such thing as a healthy, overweight person. Fat <laughs> cells spew out cytokines and they promote aromatase. They raise estrogen levels. They raise cancer levels. Fat cells make you insulin resistant. When you're overweight, you're not healthy. The nutritarian diet is based on moderate caloric restriction, eating the right amount of calories, not too much, not too little, moderate caloric restriction in the context of micronutrient excellence. We have to eat a diet with a high micronutrient bang per caloric buck. So as we're laying out our dietary portfolio and deciding what to eat and what not to eat, we can't just eat unlimited amounts of every food. We have to pick some foods to eat. We have to, what could we fit into our 1500 caloric pie today? What kind, so do you want to put in the best foods or you want to put in the worst foods? And I'm saying that as ridiculous as this sounds, I'm claiming that a healthier diet is more longevity promoting than a diet that's not as healthy. Mm -hmm. People want to argue that. They can't grasp the fact that when you eat a diet that's healthier, it is healthier. It's more disease reversal potential. It's more longevity potential. And people get, get better health in their later years with more mental, you know, less memory loss, mental clarity, creativity, and physical ability with less deterioration of the joints and the, bone, and the body. So what I'm saying right now is we're trying to cultivate nutritional excellence with including a wide variety of food that covers the full spectrum of human needs for nutrients. Okay. And when we do that, and we're eating foods that are green vegetables, and not only green vegetables and beans and berries and seeds and mushrooms and onions, but G-bombs, G-B-O-M-B-S, greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds, at least, at least keeps in the forefront of people's minds 
those G-B-O-M-B-S, those six foods mm -hmm. that have the most scientific support for extending human lifespan and protecting against cancer. And we're trying to include those foods in our diet on a daily basis. So that's one thing that's very important. And we're recognizing that a diet, if we're taking out all the fat out of a diet, and, you know, then you, and you're taking it, that if we're removing oil, which is empty calories, we still need the inclusion of nuts and seeds because walnuts are much healthier than walnut oil. Yes. And sesame seeds are much healthier than sesame oil. And, you know, pecans are much healthier than pecan oil. That oil is, is not as a fat-promoting food that makes people overweight. And it's much healthier to include the whole nut or seed rather than the oil from that nut or seed. So we make recipes and dressing utilizing nuts and seeds as the creamy part or the fatty part, not using um, the oil. So, we're mm -hmm. so when, we, when we reduce or remove foods from the diet, we're picking foods that don't have as much compensatory advantages, that don't have the beneficial life beneficial um, longevity-promoting effects and anti-cancer effects. We may not eat as, eat as much potato because, you know, we, we do, because beans are, have a lower glycemic effect. They have slower digestible carbohydrates. They're more anti-cancer potential. They're more anti-glycemic. So we're going to pick and, and moderate the amount of one food versus another based on its um, health properties and nutritional properties to design a diet that's ideal and allow people to eat a diet where they feel satiated, yeah. satisfied, and still don't exceed the calories they need. And what I'm saying right now is when people eat a diet so rich in nutrients and fiber and get that, then it naturally without any, and instinctually suppresses their appetite and right. makes them desire the right amount of calories. They don't willy nilly have to eat thimble sized portions of food. They can eat more robust portions because the foods they're eating like salads and bean soups and mushroom dishes, stroganoffs and stuff. Those are, they're, they're low calorie, they're, the caloric density of the meals are low enough that they can still eat enough volume to make them feel satisfied. And without, you know, bias, um, recognizing that as we move a diet, towards being plant-based or, or even towards being all the way vegan, because I don't know what the word plant-based means. It's a little bit confusing. How much animal products is acceptable to call a diet plant-based? Is it 10% acceptable? Is 20%? Is 5%? Or is zero? What do they mean by plant-based? So we try to be more specific here. And I'm saying that a diet is health, really healthy. It, it, has to, it, shouldn't be between, it should be between zero and 5%. Even 10% of calories from animal products could be too much for optimal health probably has to be below 10%. Mm. But as you move to that zero to 5% range, then you're, you're reaching a suboptimal range of zinc, of B12, of K2, and of, and of DHA or EPA or fatty acids found in, in small animals and seafood. You're reaching, reaching a suboptimal range where you're allowing people to put themselves at risk of later life neurologic problems like dementia or Parkinson's disease or, or B12 deficiency diseases. So that, in other words, we're also including the judicious use of supplements to assure that a person when a person's diet goes from animal products to vegan, they're not missing anything in the animal products that could have benefited them, such as ex the extra zinc or B12 or, um, or, or the extra seafood that was supplying EPA or DHA. Mm -hmm. I, I've been in, my career has put me in a unique position as a physician. As a family doctor in active practice, seeing patients all day long for more than three decades, my practice saw thousands of people, elderly, elderly people on vegan diets, and no other doctor in the country has had that experience. Mm -hmm. I was a doctor for, for the American Natural Hygiene Society, the American Vegan Society. Back in 30 years ago, when there weren't many vegans around, I, you know, I was involved with these people on vegan diets, and I was a little bit disturbed about the high risk of dementia they developed in their later years, and many of them which developed Parkinson's. So I became interested in how come all these healthy eating vegans are developing Parkinson's and developing dementia when they're eating so healthily, they're getting all, the, they're getting all these phytochemicals and antioxidants, they're eating all the fruits and vegetables and they're eating, why are they developing it? And of course, with blood work and investigation and seeing that the studies corroborate my findings, seeing that um, DHA deficiency was yep. common in these elderly vegans, which seemed to exacerbate or allow the, um, the development of dementia in later life. So much more careful 
today to make sure that people maintain a beneficial B12 level and a beneficial omega-3 index, monitoring that and make sure that on a vegan diet, your omega-3 index stays above five, because the studies also corroborate this idea that that when you're, that as your omega-3 index drops to four to three to two and one, you have higher rates of cognitive impairment and brain shrinkage with aging. And those studies are also consistent or not controversial, that low levels of the omega-3 index correlate with higher rates of neurologic impairment later in life. And just like you have the paleo and keto community telling you how healthy it is to eat their diet, you have the vegans denying the fact that, that um, omega-3 fatty acid deficiency could lead to dementia. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's mind boggling how people's biases, they yeah. can't see what the science shows and, and just do what's careful for them. I am so, so glad you brought that up because this has been my experience. I find even if people, most vegans or plant-based eaters, however they want to call themselves, do take B12, but omega-3, I've seen indexes as low as 1.25 and even less. Because it's almost like they're on this completely fat-free, high uh, vegetable diet. And even like not as many fruits. So my question to you would be, instead of ask, um, adding supplements, would you, is there a natural source of omega-3 that they could just have on a very prudent base in a small amount that would actually benefit them thinking of something that's naturally available instead of going through the process of extracting just the EPA and DHA from a natural source? Essentially, no. Okay. Because um, there, the ALA, the alpha-linolenic acid found in hemp seeds and walnuts and green vegetables, the body can convert about 5% of that into EPA and about 2% of that EPA into DHA. Mm -hmm. And that may be enough for some people. I've seen some vegans eating low fat, eating pretty healthy diets that are low in fat, be able to convert enough and have an adequate omega-3 index with just the inclusion of flax seeds, walnuts, and green vegetables. Right. But, not that's, but that's somewhat unusual. It's not the majority of people. It leads to, it's more likely not to happen. So even though you can make dietary adjustments to consume more omega the short-chain omega-3 with the hope that you're going to convert enough, convert, yeah. not check a blood test to see that your level is adequate and just assume you're converting enough, that's the part I'm objecting to because there's something wrong with that. If taking chances with people's lives for the nutritional guru to say, oh, it doesn't matter, don't even check your levels. Well, if you want to think you don't need to supplement, then at least draw a blood test and make sure you're safe. Because it's otherwise you take it's, it's otherwise it doesn't make any sense. It's just it's just um, dangerous for people to give that to so, too many to give that advice. So therefore, that like I, for example, in my medical practice, like 15 years ago, I was noting this problem. It was a big you know, big problem for me. Yeah. To have all these people developing this problem, so I was giving them vegan EPA and DHA, and except to, and also fish oil. But people were complaining about um, hard one. Yeah, heart, um, indigestion or bad taste in the mouth. Right, right. So I had them analyzed, and too many of them had high DBA, TBA scores. They were very, they started to go rancid because they were mostly in health food stores, mm. temperature. So I started to order and develop um, my own, which I'd order it from the company that makes them, and I'd have them shipped to us in refrigerated trucks from the time of manufacturing and stored in my basement in refrigerators. So when I gave them out to my patients, they were fresh. So I started doing that, and that's really why I started making my DHA product, which we keep in refrigeration, so just to make it's the same stuff. It's just refrigerated to keep it fresher. Yeah, oils do deteriorate over time at room temperature. Got it. Got it. So, would you recommend, like, for the so the other big diet, which is what the studies keep pouring out about nutrition, though we've never been able to do another study like the Mediterranean diet, is that something that you have an opinion about? Um, well, you know, I don't hold the Mediterranean diet as a diet that people should respect as a favorable diet mm -hmm. because just because it's a little better than the American diet, it's still by worldwide standards and by blue zone standards, it's not even a good diet. By, you know, the Sardinians are a blue zone, but, you know, so are Okinawans and Seventh-day Adventists and uh, Iberia. In other words, there's a lot of blue zones that each have their, most of them, such as the Sardinian Blue Zone, don't, they're, they're, most of the people there are not living past 90 years old. 
They're just the average death is still 86, let's say, where the average death in America is 80. It's not a, a tremendous benefit. Yeah, yeah. But the general Mediterranean diet with the use of pasta and olive oil generally doesn't get much doesn't get much different. Maybe their difference in age or lifespan from America is not even one year different from our from ours in this country. It's not much better. We're talking about adding 20 years to the diet. The Mediterranean falls diet falls right flat on its face when compared to better eating styles. So it's just that it's just a matter of popularity and what people hear in the news. Correct. You know, but certainly eating more fruits and vegetables and tomato sauce and less butter and meat is certainly beneficial, but not but nobody could argue that pizza and white flour is not a lifespan shortening food, you know, even in the, but, but in any case, it's not really the point we're making here. Right. We're trying to design a diet to be, to hold up as the pinnacle of excellence and not just take, pick any diet that's a moderately better than what Americans eat, you know, so I'm saying the pinnacle of excellence is clear as to what that diet should contain and the Mediterranean diet is not it. So when I um, started following you years ago, one of the things I remember um, you were teaching how to make dressings. You used olive oil in the past. Is that, has that changed? No, I didn't use olive oil in the past. Oh, okay. Um, Maybe I in, my, in my book, Eat for Health, yeah. written about 2008, I had three steps of dietary excellence. Okay. And I allowed people to use a small amount of olive oil yeah. in their diet on the entry phase to the diet. So okay. people could, take, could choose their level of excellence they wanted to. But the goal was to eat, have them use less oil and substitute whole seeds and nuts like sesame seeds and olives and as their source of fat and, and cashews and walnuts. There was always the expectation that if a person wanted to move towards dietary excellence, they'd reduce oil further because you can't consume even one tablespoon of oil a day is 120 calories of fat. Right. Right? right, and 120 calories of fat, you know, added on to the amount is is just we're looking to remove, you know, it, it's very it's very what's the word? It turns on fat storage hormones. It turn when you eat oil, it's digested very rapidly, and it, and because it's digested so rapidly and the calorie flux into the bloodstream is so high, it's an appetite stimulant. It wants to eat more food, and right. because the average American has been brainwashed with the biggest nutritional scam in the world is telling people that olive oil and coconut oil are health foods, but they actually use these things liberally, yeah. consuming on the average between 400 and 500 calories from oil a day. And 400, 500 calories from oil a day means you have to become overweight. You can't be, unless you're a world, an athlete or working behind a plow and an ox eight hours a day, lift, unless you're a physical laborer, there's no way you're going to be healthy with that oil in your diet because there's no way you can be slim. So show me a person that eats that oil for a woman whose body fat is below 22% or for a male whose body fat is below 14%. Mm -hmm. Because unless their, their body fat is favorable, they're not in good health. And there's no way they're going to get their body fat favorable consuming all that fat and mm -hmm. all that oil. You know, so, the, and, and the, so what I'm saying, also, when you compare in the Prevamid study, they compared... They gave people virgin olive oil to take home with them in bottles, and their heart attack rates went down by about 15% compared to those people just using butter and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But when they took the oil away and told them to eat nuts and seeds as a source of fat, their heart attack rate went down by 60%. So even though oil is better than butter, and we could show a lot of benefits to olive oil comparing it to, other, to, to butter and to, other, and to eating you know, bread and other things instead of oil, you, you still got to um, compare it to the real thing, which is a, using oh. nuts and seeds as a source of fat. When you use the whole food, an olive and not an olive oil or a, or a nut instead of the nut oil, then we see dramatic health benefits. So most of my dressings, so even though I may allow that, in a, in, a, in a diet that I'm telling people a stepping stone to try to get better. It's, it's not really what I'm advocating. What I'm advocating is learn the dressings with the nuts and seeds, make the, you know, peel the navel orange and mix in with the, with some toasted sesame seeds and cashews and, and some blood orange vinegar and lemon, make the greatest dressings in the world, make a great Russian fig dressing with fig vinegar and tomato sauce and sun-dried tomatoes and almonds and, and, and temp seeds and mix, you know, or, and mix that and make a delicious almond dressing, make an almond balsamic and do, you know, so we're making dressings and sauces and dips, a Thai dip with lemongrass and curry and a date and hemp seeds and a little peanut. We're using the whole food because it's much more satisfying. It, people aren't going to gain weight from it, and it's much healthier for people. And, and also, you need some fat with that vegetable-based meal because the fat helps facilitate the absorption of all those phytochemicals. And you may absorb 
the carotenoids and other anti-cancer phytochemicals 20 to 50 times more easily to absorb more absorption when you're eating some fat in that meal. So we want some small degree of fat, such as half an ounce of nuts and seeds with, each, with lunch and dinner, a half an ounce in the dressing at lunch per person, and a half an ounce of nuts and seeds with a dressing at dinner per person, blending into a dressing or a sauce to really um, get the most nutrition out of that meal. That's what I'm really recommending. Got it. So you have also a retreat in San Diego um, for people um, that are, if I remember reading it right, for food addictions or for reversal of chronic disease and people stay there from four to 12 weeks in order to get their health back. Um, what is, um, how much of this is a mindset? How do, how do you find people who are ready to do uh, give away four weeks of their lives? It's almost like a vacation. It should be like a vacation. Um, but what, what kind of, um, I guess, who are the people who need that kind of help when they have to go to a retreat? Right. And what is the outcome or what is the transformation that they undergo? Is there a lot of mindset that comes into this um, more than just, I mean, eating whole foods should be a no-brainer for most people because they, when you tell them eat really whole vegetables and fruits, what I've seen in my practice is when we're asking people to change, make that change, there's a lot of hands-on that we have to help them with. People don't know how to cook. I feel like that's a skill that's completely missing in most of the households. Is that something that they learn through that retreat? Yes, you asked me quite a few questions there. Yeah. I know yeah. I did. <laughs> all those, that's correct. All those things you said are correct. Yeah. So just to elaborate a little bit is that, you know, I, I, you know I have seven New York Times bestselling books. My shows at PBS, on PBS television has yeah. raised over $70 million for PBS television. That means that hundreds of thousands of people across the country have bought my books and my tape series and have learned my work. And many of those people have lost weight, reversed disease. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm very proud of that and how many people I've reached. And, and, um, but nevertheless, the disappointment always has been that some people that hear the information, they want to get healthier, they just can't do it. They're too addicted. Their home environment isn't favorable for it. And when they gain, lose some weight and they get healthy, they gain it back again. They don't really stick to the program. They either don't know it well enough, they don't understand it well enough, they don't have to make it stick. But mostly, it's the dabbling. These people have a, t a predilection to, be addi to become addicted to these foods, especially salt and sugar, salt, and oil, and, and highly concentrated calories. And they need to have a period of time where they can abstain from their food triggers, from their addictive triggers. So when you have this illicit love affair with food, and, you, and people who are overweight and sickly, they know that they're not eating as good as they should. And they know that they need some help. But sometimes, and, and like I said, many people are doing this successfully on their own. All everybody doesn't have to come to my retreat to get well. But, it, but it's so beautiful and rewarding to have people come here when they, and, and watch them transform their lives because the time that they spend here, and like you're saying, two to three months of being here, you just watch a person who's, who doesn't think they can really stick with this, I don't know if I'm still going to like it as much, who learns to love eating this way, to like it better than the prior diet, to have the skills, that's right, the, we have food addiction counselors, we have, psycho, you know, we have exercise trainers here, we have, um, you know, it's, it's gorgeous here, but we have, we have fantastic, three incredible chefs, people are getting lectured to, but they're learning how to make the food taste fantastic, they're watching the weight pour off them, they're sometimes losing you know, 20 pounds the first month or 15 pounds the second month. And, you know, they're, they're very often losing, you know, 30, 40 time, pounds in the time that they're here. But they know how to keep it going. And yeah. I, I say to people, you're only a nutritarian if you're at your ideal weight or you're losing at least two pounds a week on the way to get there. If you're not losing at least two pounds a week, don't consider yourself a nutritarian. If you're following a nutritarian program, you'll be losing two pounds a week. So they, they figure out, we show them how to eat, when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat. They get it down to a science perfect for them. You know exactly how much to make that salad, how much dressing to put on top, how big should your breakfast, what should you include here. They get it down to a science. So the time they go home, they can repeat this. They can keep it going perfectly and continue the progress they've made. So yes, it takes time for people to get rid of food, their food addictions, to love and to prefer to eat this way. And, I, and my experience over the last few decades is, that, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced similar. Some people, even though they want to do it, they just can't get it done. They just can't yep. do it. 
And, and I have food addiction counselors that work for me in the practice and treat people on the phone and by email and contact with them, you know, give them food addiction counseling, but it's still an additional service that people can come and stay here. And I take a lot of people in who've had, who are like, who have some heart problems, mm -hmm. who, are, who are told they need stent placement or bypass. Or every guy just called the other day who they want to put five bypass. They want to bypass five vessels. I said, yeah. get over here. Don't take your heart apart and restructure your whole heart. Get over here and let's get you to lose 50 pounds and get you. And he's on his way, you know. And so I had a, I had a doctor from Nashville who was who was just had a heart attack in the hospital. He wanted to put an angioplasty in and he, he, he was elective. He didn't even, it wasn't, his heart attack wasn't a severe heart attack. He didn't really need, but they, but anyway, he came here, reversed it. He cleared up his heart. He's, he's doing great. And just last, just last week, I got a phone call. There was a person, a diabetic uh, mayor from um, the East Coast who came here, overweight diabetic, who had kidney insufficiency, right? Mm. His creatinine was very high. It was like 2.8 or something. And while he was here the two months, his creatinine didn't improve that much, but his diabetes went away, right? Mm. You know? But I was concerned that his kidney function didn't come down as much as I'd liked. But he called me up last week that his kidney function, his kidney, his creatinine just came down to 1.4. Wow. His, um, you know, his, his creatinine went from 2.8 to 1.4, just this, so he just followed up on it. So he's got rid of his diabetes, his high blood pressure, and now his renal insufficiency and back and back to normal again. So, I mean, the, so, we're, what I'm, so I'm seeing this regularly is that I'm really abling to transform people's lives, daily headache syndromes, fibromyalgia, renal insufficiency, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, lupus psoriasis reversal, and of course, most of all, the average person that comes here, obviously, are people that are overweight, with high blood pressure, with diabetes, and, they, and, and they're, you know, they're more than 50 pounds overweight, and they learn how to live this way so they can maintain it for the rest of their life with what they've learned here. You know? Absolutely. So a lot of what is uh, the struggle I think most people experience is their environment. If their yeah. environment doesn't allow them to make those changes or supportive, in fact, I think men succeed more in my practice than women do because they always have the woman supporting them in their nutritional changes. But when women have to do those changes, they have to cook for themselves. And sometimes the guys want to continue to eat the way they've always eaten because they don't have a weight issue. That's so true. That, that's so true. And you know, and you're right. When you, it's the, when you go home and you have a negative, when you try to smoke, quit smoking, everybody's yeah. saying, great job, you're quitting smoking. I'm going to help you quit smoking. Getting off the alcohol, fantastic. When you're trying to change the food, the people are objecting, fighting, disagreeing, arguing with them. And that negative feedback from their environment makes it extra hard. If everybody was so supportive and say, yeah, I'm going to help you. Yeah, I'm going to be right there for you. I'm going to help you make the food. We're going to do it together, all this stuff. But you're absolutely right. That's what we work on a lot here. And that's and you're you're um that astute you know observation about women versus men and how you explain that is absolutely true. Yeah, yeah, I see that all the time. So to um, really give a, a summary to people, you're really looking for a very nutrient dense diet, but also moderately caloric restriction because you don't want to have that excess calorie that goes into storage. It's what that helps you live an optimal life and finding that it can be different for different people i'm assuming but there are certain bases which we spoke of as the g-bombs the greens berries beans and onion mushrooms seeds and nuts um ha having that as a daily part of your diet and is there anything else that you believe that is an absolute must? And obviously, you want to get on a diet that's sustainable. It's not something that's in the short run. This is not something that you're learning to lose a few pounds. You're actually learning to feed yourselves, feed um, health, and not normalize disease, even though disease might be common in today's day and age. Um, is what else am I? Are we missing? What is keeping people chronically ill? And I, I truly believe a lot of it is about the protein in the food. A, a lot of folks struggle when they say they are not losing weight. I've seen fitness experts saying 40% of your diet should be coming from protein. They don't say what protein, but protein. So what is your take on that? We've covered oil. Protein is the other huge issue that um, I feel is a stumbling block. For most people to make the change well 
um, we should be very clear that there are three sources of calories. There are three macronutrients, and they're fat, carbohydrate, and protein. And to be absolutely clear, I'm saying Americans are eating too much fat, too much carbohydrate, and too much protein. They're eating too much of all three types of calories. And the most important thing is to eat less calories. That means less fat, less carbohydrate, and less protein. There's no, we're not dying of um, macronutrient deficiencies. Yeah. Yeah. We're dying of macronutrient excesses. And then we can look into further and say the type of fat, the type of protein, and the type of carbohydrate, which plays an important role. The, the Seventh-day Adventist Health Study 2 is such a critical study. It's probably the, one of the most important studies in the history of nutritional science. And the reason it's so critical, and I hold it in such high esteem, is because it studies people that have different diets. Mm -hmm. We're not just studying the Americans who are all like the same way, the Mediterranean diet, everybody's eating the same way. We're talking people who are, some are vegans, some are flexitarians, some are pescatarians, some eat a lot less animal products, some eat more. And they're different, you know, di including different races and different sexes and different ages. We're looking across a broad spectrum of, of unique differences. And what you see in that, in that study is that even, at, even when you start at low levels of animal protein exposure, that more animal protein makes for more premature death. And more plant protein in the diet makes for increased lifespan, increased longevity. So, and, and that vegan diets that are too low in protein could be an issue. Mm. Just like, so we could have, so when you're moving your diet to get rid of the animal protein to increase lifespan, then foods like hemp seeds and green vegetables and broccoli and soybeans and, you know, are, are beneficial because they give you the protein that they give the extra protein that vegans may benefit from because we know that animal protein revs up IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one, which speeds the aging process. But it's also true, and as we drop the protein levels and we get IGF-1 into a more favorable range between, let's say, you know, 80 and 125 or around 100, you know, which is because the average American is around 225. So yeah. being around 100 to 150 is a better range of being around 200 to 250, right? Yeah. But then we see some people as they age with less protein bioavailability, could become frail and weak and their immune systems can be down because they're, 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 they're like a macrobiotic diet or a potato-based diet and their IGF-1 is dropping too low and, and their immune system is not functioning um, optimally. Mm -hmm. And then attention to protein with making sure they're having, you know, the higher protein plant foods is beneficial for them. It's not the major element here, but something that us nutritional doctors keep in mind, that as we're reducing animal protein, we do want to at least be aware that the diet has enough plant, that the plant protein is adequate as people age, because your protein ability to digest and make the protein bioavailability, bioavailability goes down with aging. So a person in their 20s or 30s or 40s can get by with a diet of a, you know, a, a rice-based or a potato-based diet or a, or a fruitarian-based diet, but they may start to suffer with some issues when they're passing the age of 70 on those type of diets because the extra protein, they may need require a little extra protein. Um, yeah, the way I explain it to my patients is that protein comes, there's protein that comes with fat and protein that comes with fiber. And you really want to increase the protein that comes with fiber, which is predominantly uh, plant-based. I, I don't think there's any animal protein with fiber anyways. So um, and people don't, what people think, they equate the word protein with animal products. Yes. Protein is eggs and meat. They don't realize that beans are high in protein, that seeds are high in protein, Absolutely. that greens are high in protein, that, you know, they're not understanding that like a bean has as much protein as most meats. Yep. Yep. And soy has actually a lot of protein uh, yeah. compared to broccoli and other things. And then there's all this nonsense about soybeans being harmful. Yeah. <laughs> when actually very, the literature shows they're powerfully protective against cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Though there are some studies that show the Asian population, maybe again, how we grow our soy um, impacts um, what it causes. But I totally agree with you. I always tell my patients, you know, if you really want a whole source of protein, soy is probably your best option. So uh, is there anything that I'm, I should have asked you, but I haven't asked you? Um that you feel like people should know about nutrition and health? Well, I think you've asked me a lot of great questions and we've talked a lot of important points, but I always want to reiterate that I don't want people to be complacent with being sick and taking drugs. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that if you're on, I wanted to make it clear that if you're on high blood pressure medications, you should be changing your diet style with getting the salt out and, and increasing your, so you can get better. The point I'm making right now is, when I'm affording people this opportunity to get full protection against heart attacks and strokes, it's because they've 
earned it because they don't need blood pressure medications anymore. They don't need blood pressure lowering drugs. They don't need um, cholesterol lowering drugs. They don't need diabetic medications. They don't need, they, they're, in other words, their, their weight is favorable, their exercise tolerance is favorable, and of course, they're not requiring drugs and they have normal blood pressure, normal cholesterol, and normal um, glucose parameters without medications now. You've right. achieved normal parameters without drugs. That's how we know they're protected. The more drugs they need, the idea that you, you're controlling it with drugs and the numbers look good on the drugs, that's not protection. That's fake protection. Yeah. And the other things we haven't talked about, which aren't quite as important as the things we talked about, of course, are exercise, sleep, salt, just things like that, and, and eating late at night. Because obviously we want people not to eat a big meal before they go to bed at night. Mm -hmm. We want them to finish eating dinner earlier. So they have three to four. So they close, shut, up the, shut down the restaurant, clean the kitchen so it's spotless, clean your teeth so they're really clean, and then don't eat anymore as the night progresses. Give yourself three to four hours before you go to, so you're finished eating before you go to bed at night. It's important not to sleep on a full stomach, digesting and refluxing food up in your chest while you're sleeping at night. Yeah. And the other thing is, is getting a lot of uh, being active. And being, you know, and being physically fit, not over-exercising, but being physically fit and getting enough sleep at night. So all those things are important, but obviously the dietary um, portfolio is the most important. Absolutely. There are so many environments for a human being. The nutrition is a huge part of it. It's something that they can easily change. Sometimes the other aspects of your environment requires a little more effort. But yes, I, I totally agree with you. Movement, sleep, and food are the three of the five pillars we talk about in our uh, practice. Um, but in general, I think most folks are so obsessed with nutrition because they've been told um, how they eat and what they eat is causing their obesity, though there are other factors that go into it. Because we see this among sports folks, people who are uh, tennis players. They are much heavier when they're actively playing tennis than when they retire and they actually lose a lot of the weight because of the stress that's involved, the over-exercising, the lack of sleep, a lot of other things that go into it. Um, but um, thank you so much. I think this was very, very valuable information. And if you could, I know you have a diabetes program that you run. Is, is that an online program that you do? Yes, four times a year I run online, online disease reversal programs. And, but yeah, as you know, I have books on these subject matters, the end yes. of diabetes, the end of heart disease, and my latest book, of course, is called Eat for Life, mm -hmm. which has all the latest research in it. It's always a good place to start if a person's really interested to read one of the books. But then, yes, I do have where we have lectures and groups and Facebook groups and, and diet plans and menus, and we have a lot of things going on during the year that motivate people to join this group and to really take charge of their health in various ways. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Dr. Furman, this has been awesome. And I am sure if there are any questions, I'll send them your way. All right. Best of health to, of course, you and all your listeners.